if you thought there could never be anything more badass than the theme from Ghostbusters, here it is. It is a mashup of the theme from Ghostbusters with Michael Jackson's Bad. Hey, everybody. I'm Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast. This week, I'll be talking about the best non-entertainment-oriented podcast for movie ideas. You're going to find some really good things here, I think. Also insight into how readers evaluate projects, whether stories in the news affect the spec market, and I'll be deconstructing a scene, an action scene from The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is a fantastic movie by Shane Black, who you might know as the writer-director of Iron Man 3. I highly recommend that you check out, it is under Clip from The Long Kiss Goodnight on YouTube, and when we get to it in about 20 minutes, you can follow along watching while I talk about it. I'll do a little bit of a running commentary. So, first up. The most important podcast you're not listening to is called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. It's a weekly podcast. You can go on iTunes and just like this podcast, you can subscribe, so the podcast will automatically download. And... This is a podcast that deals with conspiracy theories, government secrets, pseudoscience, and alternative history. And whether or not you buy into any of this stuff, Hollywood loves it. Because the idea is that you're going to take these ideas that other people have been studying and think might be occurring and turn them into movie concepts. I mean, the idea of Bigfoot, for example, has inspired everything probably from, you know, King Kong. You know, I really don't know. Is Bigfoot something that precedes King Kong or did King Kong perhaps inspire the concept of Bigfoot? I don't know. They actually did an entire episode on Bigfoot that I haven't listened to. But Bigfoot falls into the idea of cryptozoology, which is the search for animals that have never been proven to exist. And right there, there's a, I could probably name 10 different movies that deal with that, with deal with things like the Chupacabra. Now, of course, you might believe that, hey, there's not much new under the sun. If it's on land, we would have found it. And there's quite definitely no Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. Well, hey, that's okay. You're a skeptic. I'm, I happen to be a skeptic and be fascinated by all this stuff. So in each episode, we'll deal with a very specific topic. Uh, and the other thing they deal with is alternative history. Alternative history is anything different than what you learned in school, um, often with a supernatural influence. The greatest example is Stargate, where the idea that aliens came to Earth through some sort of portal, uh, which is probably more likely, you know, coming from a different dimension than, than actual space travel, because space travel takes a really long time, perhaps having used human slaves or imported their own slaves in order to build pyramids, which are these power centers that did things that we don't quite understand because we've lost that information, um, and that there's this portal that people go back and forth between. None of that stuff Roland Emmerich came up with. This is really popular conspiracy slash alternative history uh, theory stuff that has been going on for about 50 years. There's an entire industry of authors who use this stuff in order to make themselves money. And, you know, we now have a series called Ancient Aliens that deals with, and it deals with this very specific topic. And they always, the, the problem that I have with it is they take any little piece of questionable information and use that to support their case. They completely avoid any alternative ideas uh, that might suggest something that's a little bit more, you know, based in reality. But, um, 
this is where movie ideas come from, and you can use these to create whatever kind of movie you want to do. So um, did the Nazis have UFO technology? Did the Nazis prove the Earth were ho- was hollow? Uh, why does the USA fluoridate water? What is a chemtrail? Uh, these are all episodes of stuff they don't want you to know. Here's one. What was the New England vampire panic? I don't have any fucking idea what the New England vampire panic was, but you know what? If you do, or if you listen to this podcast, you are welcome to go write a movie about that. And the crazy thing is, here's the thing you want to keep in mind. You should always err on the side that these things are really happening. Always err towards the supernatural. Hollywood loves the supernatural. Audiences love the supernatural. We want our minds to be blown. And we've already seen The Crucible, which was the very real-world version of somebody pointing a finger at somebody else and saying, I know this person is a witch. That is probably not as interesting as watching somewhat a historical version with the fun stuff added in that the New England vampire panic was real and how did this person who's investigating this fight back against it. There there are some original elements to it, but the idea of Men in Black is actually that there, since the 1940s or 50s, has been a super secret government organization who is so secretive that they don't even admit, admit that they exist and that they were the ones who dealt with things like Roswell and other events that they wanted to keep uh secret. So you are free to check out this podcast. And remember, this is where great movie ideas come from. They had a whole episode on serial killer cults because there's this theory that serial killers are often part of cults and often being manipulated into doing these crimes. Now, these guys who do the podcast felt that that was bullshit. They did not buy into the idea that these crazy people were being manipulated by cults, even though multiple serial killers have claimed that that's what they were up to and that's who was motivating them. You know, whether or not you're writing another Loch Ness Monster thing based on cryptozoology, the search for animals that have never been proven to exist, whether you're, you know, Bigfoot can be King Kong or it can be Harry and the Hendersons, which was a movie about a family that hit Bigfoot with their car and took him home and had to keep this secret pet along the lines of E.T. Whatever your purposes are and whatever types of movies you write, this is where you find great information and great ideas and great jumping off points. Next up, creative casting. It's really important when you come up with an idea that you know who could star in this movie. Is there more than one actor who could possibly fit this role? And I use the term creative casting because very often when I say to somebody, well, who could star in this film? They throw out a name that is creative, that's outside the box, that is somebody who does not currently star in Hollywood movies. Now, there is a grooming process that happens with movie stars where they sort of move up the ladder. They get supporting roles in movies, then they get a villain role in a really big movie, and then they get the lead role. So if you're talking about somebody who just, say, was the the lead villain in a Fast and Furious movie, that person the studio is probably looking at is, okay, next up, we're going to turn this person, you know, into a leading man. But if you're just picking an actor because you think they might be right for the role, somebody once said to me, oh, Allison Janney would be great for that. You know what? Allison Janney from The West Wing and a ton of other stuff is one of my favorite actresses. I've heard her new sitcom is hysterical. She's wonderful. She's never going to star in a feature film. If it would have happened, it would have happened already. And it's not your job to turn one of America's greatest character actresses into a leading lady. So be careful about that. And here's the question you can ask yourself. When was the last time they starred in a studio film? 
And when was the last time they were even in a studio film? Because there's plenty of actors who are name people who you recognize. You say, wow, that person's a legend. And if you look at what they've done over the last decade, they haven't even gotten a supporting role in a studio film. Often that has to do with behavior, by the way. You can often say, why is this person not in any movies? And Or why are all these movies little independent films by directors I've never heard of that went direct to video on demand? The reason for that is often behavior. You need to be smart about the type of film that you write and the type of character that you put into specific situations, depending on the genre. Um, this is something that, you know, often when I do my concept consulting, that's what we discuss. We discuss, you know, does the concept work? And then, you know, we need to settle on the right type of hero for that specific movie. And that has to do with age. It has to do with gender and it has to do a little bit, you know, there's other deviations of that. Race isn't really that important. Scripts are written relatively colorblind, unless you're talking about supportive, supporting roles. But, you know, blue collar versus white collar is kind of an important thing to get in touch with. And there's a couple of other factors that will come into play based on the idea that you're working on. And that's the kind of thing that writers often have a really difficult time settling in on. They treat it like it's more of a creative thing. Well, who works or who's the person that I see in this without really thinking about when was the last time this actor actually starred in a film in this genre? Don't deal with creative casting. Don't think, oh, Stanley Tucci would be great as my leading man. And, and he's in The Hunger Games, and that's the biggest movie ever. Therefore, Stanley Tucci is a leading man. Uh, Stanley Tucci makes amazing films, but he definitely is not going to be the main face on a poster from a major studio. He will, however, continue to get supporting work probably until he dies, and it will be very well paid, and people love him, and he's one of our greatest actors. This has nothing to do with the quality of the talent. Another issue I want to talk about real quickly is that readers work backwards. I had a, a client who I had suggested at the end of our process go to the blacklist. I've talked about that a little bit because he got some really great responses. And he paid for 10 coverages or 10 evaluations from them, from 10 different readers, because he had some money to burn, I guess. And we used those notes. He then hired me to take a look at it, read through all those things and discuss what are the things that could be addressed relatively easily in a rewrite? We looked through, we picked out a couple of things, changed a couple of scenes, and he resubmitted it. And he went from getting fives and sixes to getting a four, which was his lowest evaluation yet. And the, the thing is that when it comes to the number that you're looking at, remember, Unless you've gotten coverage out of an agency, which I've done for for writers before, you know, they, they live or die based on, you know, what a coverage department uh, says about their script. And, you know, sometimes if you're – you can call somebody at the agency and get it and send it to the writer so that they have an idea of what people are actually saying in a really honest way about their material. What I said to this writer about the 4 out of 10 because he's like, how is this possible? And I said, you know, the, the number itself isn't really that relevant. What's relevant is what the person is saying about the script, and the person definitely had some issues with it. And some of the issues that that person had, that reader, were not what I consider to be valid. However, as I explained to the my, my client, readers work backwards. They read the script, and the only question that they have is, does this script keep me reading? You know, you're in charge as the writer. You're the conductor of the train. And the question is, do people want to stay on the train or do they want to jump off? 
And it becomes really unpleasant. If you're being paid to read a script, you probably have to read it to the end. And it becomes incredibly unpleasant because people in the industry don't give scripts chances. You, It's your job to keep them reading. And if they don't want to keep reading, they won't. They have other scripts to read, and they've made the evaluation that this is not something we can sell. This isn't even something I want to continue reading. I can't tell you how many times I've read scripts that I've gotten to the end and said, eh, meh, not, not for me, uh, not for my company. So you want to remember that. that the, I, I told him not to obsess over the fact it wasn't like he moved backwards because this reader just judged his numbering system was a little bit harsher. Uh, than some of the other people, but he didn't, he seemed to appreciate certain elements and he seemed to have trouble with certain elements. And the last thing about that is that some of the things that he was saying that I said were not valid. The reason I say that they're not valid is because I don't want the writer to go back and try to fix those things. What I suggested to him was once you turn off of the script, if you've been paid to read the whole thing, and you're in a coverage situation, it's very different, of course, if I'm dealing with a client. I don't need to go hunting for ammunition. But ammunition, when I say that, is what, you know, if you've turned off of the script, if you don't like it, you're going to be looking for things to say when you shit on this script in your coverage because you need to show that you've read it and you need to be specific about those things. And, you know, it puts your guard up in a way that does not work well with movie screenplays. Movie screenplays are full of ridiculous coincidences. All movies are based on ridiculous coincidences, or at least all romantic comedies tend to be. Um, So, you know, part of the structuring factor of a screenplay is going to work against you when somebody starts hating your script. The other thing I want to talk about is that a lot of times writers get way too wrapped up in external events and use that as an idea as to why their script might become more valuable. And we now have the test of that, which is nonstop. Nonstop was released right before this Malaysian airliner went missing, and it behaved at the box office in the exact same way that the film would have in terms of its week-to-week drop-off that it would have anyway, which is that it's performing like a movie, like a very strong thriller that got great audience reaction. I believe it got an A uh, on CinemaScore, which is the rating system that audiences give, and... So I'm going to share with you a section of a scene from one of my client's scripts and talk a little bit about opening up a scene. I'm also going to talk a little bit about symbolism, but I'll get to that second. So in this premise, a and I'm actually not going to tell you what this script is about because it doesn't matter. But I'm, let's say, for example, in this premise that a wife has superpowers, uh, her husband works for a company that works against people with superpowers, and he has just found out that his wife has these powers and that their son is afflicted with this condition also. Also, I should mention that this scene takes place in the family kitchen. They stare at each other for a beat as Simon's face transforms with rage. He's not my son. He's the company's property, and you've wrecked everything. His wife, Kate, replies, it's not my fault. He squeezes her neck, causing her to gasp. She scratches at his hands. He controls himself, loosens his hold. I won't kill you here. I'm taking you in. Kate says, please. Simon says, I'll handle you myself. She hooks a leg around his and throws her weight at him. Simon cracks his head against the cabinet as they go down, and she scrambles away. And the next scene takes us outside, exterior house. Stumbling into the driveway, Simon catches the taillights of Kate's car disappearing. 
we have an we have this argument that's occurring between them. We have the revelation. He's found out that she's not who she says she is, and that this is a very dangerous situation for him. Well, he says, "I'm going to. I'm not going to kill you. I'm taking you into the company." And he grabs her neck. Her reaction to that is she scratches his at his hands, and then he controls himself, loosens his hold. And when he says, I'm taking you in, she hooks a leg around his and throws her weight at him. She throws him off balance. He cracks his head against the counter and leaves. That's not enough of a scene. You know, that's like the premise of a scene. That's the cliff notes of the scene. Whether it's action thriller or not, there is an altercation here. And the beginning of it is he has now made it physical. He puts his hands on her neck. The end of it is that she hooks his leg, he hits his head, and she escapes. Where's the big showdown? Where's the interaction between the two of them? Where does she get control? And then he wins control back, and then she has the finishing move of maybe sweeping the leg. Or you could expand it even more. But, you know, in a case like this, you're going to say, okay, um, you know, because writers often say, oh, I did so much research. Look at all my research. Look at all my research. You know what research this writer needed? You know what I suggested to her? Go into your kitchen. Look at what items can be used as weapons. Was she baking a cake before and the egg, the beaters are already plugged in? Is there tea boiling on the stove? Because there's nothing. I've seen 50 movies that use boiling water as a weapon. It's the writer's job in order to expand the premise of a scene. And here's what I really want you to think about. There's nothing wrong with anything that I read. You know, if you're saying, oh, I could write better dialogue. No, no, you can't. This dialogue is fine. The problem with it is that it doesn't make an argument for a sale. It doesn't go above and beyond. It doesn't go balls to the wall. Now, my suggestion is you can always go too far and then pull it back a little bit. So if you're at home, feel free to hop over to YouTube. You're going to want to write clip from the long kiss goodnight into the search bar. And the first clip that it returns is what you're looking for. If you're not at home, I'm going to talk along uh, with the clip. So no worries. I will definitely explain what's happening and you can just listen along. But in the future, I'm probably going to be pulling some more clips and, that are available to you online so that I can talk a little bit about what's going on. And hopefully that'll be, you know, far more educational just to set up the clip and give you guys a second to get to the point in the clip where I'm going to start. I'm going to start one minute in. It's a three minute and 20 second clip. I'm going to start exactly at one minute. The Long Kiss Goodnight was a 1996 film uh, directed by Rennie Harlan. It was written by Shane black and it was the highest selling spec sale of all time i believe it still may be uh, because there were no attachments to the project there was no director there were no stars there was no production date it was literally just a script and shane black was so powerful at the time based on a decade's worth of huge spec sales that started with lethal weapon um, that he the the studios i believe actually went to the agency to read the script, which is something that I don't know that that's ever happened since. This was an event, this, this spec script. And if you watch the film, whatever you think about it, and most critics, by the way, really liked it, there's still talk about doing either a sequel or doing some sort of reboot of the film. You will see a reboot one day, I promise you, because they don't write female characters like this that often. And the concept is that this woman, played by Gina Davis, woke up seven years ago after a coma with amnesia. She was pregnant. She eventually had the baby, became a school teacher, now has a fiance, and is safely ensconced in a suburban life 
but her memories are returning as to the woman that she was before her accident. And of course, it turns out that Gina Davis is really Charlie Baltimore, one of the world's top assassins, who is just a ruthless, driven woman who is completely different and has a whole different set of values and personality than the suburban mom that Gina Davis has turned into. So the film is really about a character who is trying to find an identity for herself. She starts off as suburban mom. She becomes, or she throws herself into this new personality, Charlie Baltimore, where she basically tries to get rid of the domestic life. She says, look, I didn't ask for a baby. I didn't ask for the suburbs. That's not me. I'm back. And of course, by the end of the film or by the third act, we're going to watch the character instead of trying to abandon her earlier personality one way or another. And she's going to become what Blake Snyder calls Fusion Man, which is a combination of all of the best traits of these two very different personas that she's inhabited. So we're going to start off here at one minute in this clip and play. So in this clip, we see a group of carolers. They are singing very badly. These are Christmas carolers and the camera pans over and there is a shotgun pointed at one of their heads. That's why they're singing badly. They're all very disturbed. Gina Davis is coming to the door uh, to greet them with a bowl of M&Ms, I guess, or something like that. She's going to give them candy. I don't know why they, she would do that, except the candy dish is important because now the assassin has confronted her. He's just smashed the candy dish. They're fighting over the gun. Her daughter walks downstairs. Her boyfriend runs out and is fighting with the assassin. The assassin, of course, gets rid of the boyfriend really quickly. And with this shotgun, he's trying to shoot Gina Davis, but he slips on the M&Ms that fell on the floor. He just shot a hole in the wall. Gina Davis picks up her daughter, throws her daughter out the side of the house, out of this brand new hole into the tree house that's about 10 feet away. And now Gina Davis and the assassin are, they fall into the floor. They're fighting for the gun. She's crawling towards it. So we're about one minute into this action scene now. And the assassin is in control. He just threw her through a glass door into the kitchen. He picks up his shotgun. He shoots her. She opens the refrigerator door in order to protect herself. She rockets backwards into a cabinet. And then she starts throwing muffin trays at him, which does nothing. He's about to shoot her. He's out of ammunition. Now he runs up to her. He grabs her. He says, I want my eye back, bitch, because she took his eye out years ago. He slams her into another cabinet and he picks up a knife. He's about to stabber she picks up a lemon meringue pie slams it into his face he goes unconscious he falls to the floor and you see just she her eyes are wild she is no longer a suburban mom she's an assassin she karate chops his back and right now the fiance comes in he sees this as she leans down and she snaps the dude's neck with her bare hands blood sprays onto her face and then she looks down at her hand she's got a combination of uh whipped cream or meringue with blood, she licks her finger. She licks her bloody finger. And she turns to her boyfriend, who has 
witness this incredible action on her behalf. And in her, you know, steely gaze, she says, chefs do that. Because that's a line actually that's recalling from an earlier scene where her identity starts coming back. Uh, she's cooking and all of a sudden she realizes that she's very good with the knife and she starts chopping things up really, really, really fast. And the family is like, oh, and they're giving her things to chop up and she's chopping carrots and she's chopping onions. And then she picks up a tomato and she throws a knife and she literally pegs the tomato against the wall with the, with the knife. And then everybody's kind of like freaked out and she goes, uh, chefs do that because the in the scene they were discussing that maybe in her past life she was a chef. It was sort of a game that they play. What you know? What was she before this accident? So I think that you know in this scene you see the balls to the wall element that's really important. Which but there's also a couple of other things because let's say that that's not you. Let's say that you're not going to get that crazy with the type of writing that you do. Well, there's still a lot of setup and payoff. We have her go to the door with a candy dish to give to the carolers or to offer to the carolers. Why? Because just like marbles that have fallen on the floor, that's going to disturb his shot. The candy dish falls. There's M&Ms all over the floor. He's going to slip on them. The shot goes wide. That opens the hole. The hole is what she throws her daughter out of. That's setup and payoff. We've had the setup and payoff with chefs do that in an earlier scene. And by the way, you know, when you say, hey, how did she throw her daughter out the side of the house into a tree house? Did that tree house, was that established? Hell yeah, actually, that's what's in the first minute of this clip that we didn't talk about. Gina Davis is in the treehouse, and her fiancé uh, climbs up, and he says, I think you're looking for a doghouse, not a treehouse, because she feels really bad about her actions earlier that day, where she had talked very harshly to her daughter in a lapse where she turned into Charlie Baltimore, essentially, and her daughter had broken her wrist, and instead of being comforting to her daughter, she said, life is pain, get used to it, and then she snapped back. So we're going to see, in this scene, at the end of it, we see the wildness of Charlie, Charlie Baltimore return, and then we see at the very, very end, she settles back. There's this moment that Gina Davis plays really well where we see in her eyes that she's gone from assassin mode back into, oh, my God, what what just happened? I'm going to leave it there for this week. Keep in mind that I am just starting to learn my way around this editing software. There may be some little mistakes. I'm also cutting massive amounts of the podcast out, so sometimes I may say that I'm going to talk about something and then you don't hear anything. Trust me, uh, I'm cutting a lot of stuff, and that is quite definitely to your benefit. Next week, I'll be talking a little bit about the surprise smash hit, God Isn't Dead. I haven't seen it. I'm not going to see it, but I think it's a really interesting case study to talk about in terms of a logline and in terms of a short synopsis. Also, you can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, on Amazon.com. Hire me to read your script at OfficialScreenwriting.com. You can hire me to read your script. We can do a concept consultation, uh, or you can just send me money. You can do that, too. Hey, I wouldn't complain. Uh, that's all for this week. I'm Adam Levenberg. Thanks for listening.